Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Standing as we hear from Genesis chapter 1. Good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. My name is Grace. This is my mama, Teresa. (laughs) And we'll be reading from the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. And when we're finished reading, um, we'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you guys could respond with thanks be to God. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, according to their kinds and it was so and god made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the the all the earth <laughs> And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to New King, and uh, again, happy Mother's Day. Teresa and Grace, it was great to hear your voices this morning, reading God's Word. That was really nice. Um, If you haven't met me, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And uh, if you've been coming for just the last couple months and you were not here last week, um, my wife and I were gone for two months out west. So if you're saying, who is this guy? Uh, I was gone for a bit. So here I am. So uh, just a bit of a summary from last week, if you were here, um, you remember that one of the main things that I wanted to talk about was reading the creation account with, with fresh eyes from the perspective of the first hearers. What was the context, what was the culture, and what was the genre of the text? Talked a bit about that. And then my main point was that by God's powerful word, 
he spoke the cosmos, all of creation, into being. And uh, he invested it with purpose and with destiny. That was last week. I had some interesting reactions to that sermon, as you can imagine. And uh, as Lucius said, it's not my first time preaching through Genesis. And um, Genesis has a bit of history of dividing Christians. I mean, let's just talk about it for a second. Um, It's quite interesting that there's this uh, phrase that's used a couple of times in Genesis 1, God separated the light from the darkness. And unfortunately, Christians are separated over Genesis. In fact, as soon as you mention Genesis 1, there's many Christians that are immediately on high alert. What's he going to say? What's she going to say? And and they're ready to jump when they don't hear their particular view of their understanding of Genesis 1. And, And it's become a bit of a watershed issue for a lot of people. If you don't believe exactly the way that I see it, then you've got a real problem. Maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian if you don't see it exactly the way I see it. So people really get excited about Genesis. Every person I talked to over the last week was excited, and I love that. A lot of people came to me and said, I'm reading Genesis, it feels like for the first time, and I'm so thankful for that. I think that's really great to just see it without the baggage, without getting wound up about it. So if you're wound up, just relax. It's okay. It's okay. Um, Two issues did come up that I want to address directly. Um, One issue was my discussion about the genre of Genesis 1, a couple of people were upset by that. And I talked about the fact that um, Genesis 1 um, has a specific uh, genre. I used the term story a couple of times. I talked about the generous story, and one person was very upset and said that I implied that it was just a story. It's not what I mean. It's an account... Like all of Genesis, these are stories that Moses uh, put together uh, sometime during the Exodus. A couple people were upset by that. They'd never thought about it. They just thought it kind of appeared somehow, and they were bothered by that. Let's, let's be truthful about where our scriptures come from. Let's look into it, and let's see what it says. Some people were bothered by the fact that I used the term poetry, that Genesis 1 exhibits features of Hebrew poetry. And one person said, you just made it out to be just some piece of poetry. No, I I didn't. If we don't recognize the genre that it's written in, if we don't recognize the beauty of Genesis 1, if we don't recognize the poetic elements, I think we're missing the majesty of this creation account. So if you're in that camp, again, please, please understand. I'll say this as clearly as I can. I firmly believe that the Genesis account, chapters 1 and 2, all of Genesis, all of it is God's word 
It is infallible. It is useful. It is God's word. There's no question in my mind about that. But we must start with the text. Again, my point from last week, I firmly contend that we must start with the text and the context that it was written in and then take that and bring it to bear on our culture today. Don't bring our culture from today back to Genesis and then try to figure out, well, is Genesis true or not based upon our culture? Go to the word of God first and foremost, then apply it to our culture and our day that we live in. The other uh, question that came up, and I had some great dialogue this week with several people about it, was science. I talked a bit about science last week, and uh, I just want to give you just a moment about my background. So my dad was a first principles scientist. He did cancer research for almost his entire career looking at first principles. My career was 37 years in aerospace. That was applied science. I wasn't coming up with first principles. I'm not that smart. Um, I could just take the science that I knew and apply it, and I designed systems for, for rockets, for airplanes, for helicopters, and even for the Trident submarine. So um, I, I talked about last week that science focuses on observable, repeatable, testable phenomena. That's called the scientific method. And what you do, this is first principle science. What you do is you come up with a hypothesis as a scientist. And then you take whatever you're going to study and you put it in a laboratory under very controlled conditions. And you repeat and you repeat and you repeat. And you take that data and then you apply it back to your, your premise. Is the premise true? Is it false? Do I have to adjust this? And you keep doing that. That's called the scientific method. When you go to Genesis 1, there's a bit of a difference there, uh, or, any part of Gen- or any part of the Scripture. The Bible records events in history. They're not directly, um, they're not directly um, observable, and they're not repeatable. We can't go back and study it and repeat it over and over again like you can with the scientific method. We can't go to the miracles of Jesus and bring them into a laboratory and study them, nor can we go back to the creation of Genesis and do the same. So that's why I said there's a difference between science and what the Bible teaches. That said, if you understand that, that said, we can take science and apply it to the Bible, can't we? Let me give you two examples. We can take the science of history and go back and see that, yeah, there, there was a king named Solomon, and archaeolog- archaeologists have discovered um, certain things that he existed. We can go back and find out that there was a man called Caesar Augustus. We can go back and see these things through history. Or the science of linguistics. We can go back and study the ancient languages and apply the principles of science and get tremendous insight about what the Bible is really trying to say. So I never meant to say that we can't apply science to the Scripture. What I say is our scientific method today, you can't do that 
to the Bible. We can't go back and repeat it and repeat it and observe it. Is that good? Are you guys happy with all that? My plea. Hear the word of God. First and foremost, in all its glory and majesty. And let God's word speak to your soul. Let Genesis 1 speak to you in a way it never has before. Again, that's the challenge when we take a passage that's so familiar and so easy for us to bring our understanding of today back into it. Do it the other way around. So, with all that prologue done, what I hope to do today is to quickly go through the first five days of creation, just point out a couple interesting things there, focus on day six, the creation of man in God's image and likeness, and then a bit at the end, if there's time, on the day of rest in day seven. So, uh, Luke, if you wouldn't mind to put up that slide. So, um, here is, here is the overall structure of the text. Now, I didn't come up with this myself. Um, this is something that scholars have put together over a number of years. Part number one, there's a prologue, the beginning, the initial conditions, which say it, the earth was created without form and void. That's verses one and two. And then we have, over the next six days, we have what's called two triads, Day one, two, and three. Day four, five, and six. And they line up. And here's how they line up. Uh, The first um, three days, the first triad looks at form. Form. Remember in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Empty. So on the first three days, God created form. On the next three days, he filled that form with inhabitants. So day one, initial condition, it was formless. To who? That Hebrew word. God created light. He created night and day. Day four, he put inhabitants into that form. He filled it with what? The sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, the firmament, the sky, and the seas. Day five, he gave that form from day two, inhabitants, birds in the air, fish, and all the sea creatures. Day three, there's actually two creative acts in day three, land and vegetation. He formed it. And then day six, he put inhabitants in two separate acts, animals for the land, and then human beings to rule and have dominion. You see that, how that works? You see that, how, that, how that lays out there? To me, it's very helpful to see that pattern. He formed and he filled. He formed and he filled. A direct answer to the initial condition of formless and empty. He formed and he filled. He formed and he filled. Culmination is day seven. God rests in satisfaction. Day seven is God's ultimate purpose for creation. So Luke, if you don't mind to leave that up there while, we're t- while I'm talking a bit more, I'm just going to move down through here. And uh, uh, day one. So day one, God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning 
the first day. So what happened? We talked about this last, last week. Uh, this is the blueprint for God's working. Through his powerful word, he brings darkness to light. He brings order to chaos. And this is the story of the whole Bible. And I talked a bit about that last week. And when you look at it, and when you look at what the scripture says, you may stand back and say, well, what did God create on day one? Well, he created light. Well, he actually created a period of light and of darkness, which is fulfilled in the corresponding day four, when the sun and the moon and the stars come in. What did God create? He created time. If you read day uh, four, verse 14 God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. He's creating time, a sense of time. That's his purpose. Remember, everything he created, he gave a sense of purpose and function. He puts the lights, he creates a period of time, and he says it's for seasons and times and days and years. He's creating time. That's what God's doing. Day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were above the expanse from the waters that were below the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky, evening and morning, the second day. Well... Kind of interesting. Expanse. What on earth, or between the earth and the heaven, is the expanse? Have you ever wondered that? If you read the old King James, it calls it a firmament. Some translations say it's canopy. In the Hebrew, it's rakaya. And it's an extended, solid surface. So understand what's going on here. God says, let there be an expanse between the heavens and the earth. Let it separate the waters from above from the waters below. What is that? What is that? Well, the function of the expanse was to separate the waters. Back in the time of the Exodus, when this was written in the region of the Near East, people observed that precipitation came down, right? It rains, it snows, it hails. Precipitation came down. But it didn't come down all the time. It only came down at certain periods. So there must be something that holds it up. Right? There's got to be something that holds it up. There's waters below, there's waters above. And if you read further in the Old Testament, there are these phrases which talk about the windows of heaven. The windows of heaven were opened and the rains came down at the flood. The flood, the, the rain stopped, the windows were shut. You see it in Psalms, you see it further in Genesis. So the people of the day thought, well, If precipitation falls, there must be great reservoirs of water up above. The Old Testament calls them storehouses. The storehouses of rain, the storehouses of snow. That's how they understood it. 
And since they were up, something must keep them up. And uh, when they were opened, rain or snow or hail would come down. That's how they understood it. And that's how it's described here. What is that? It's weather. God created weather. He creates time. He creates weather. And then it's interesting, if you read through the cadence of the seven days, well, the six days of creation, you'll find that he says, and it was good, except on day two. Anybody ever notice that? There's no pronouncement of good on day two. Why? Why? The only thing I can come up with, if we look at the days, day one was Sunday, day two was Monday, and even God said there's nothing good about Mondays. <laughs> How about that? Okay, got to move on. Day three, land and vegetation. What's that? Happy Monday, yeah. Happy Monday, he said. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters were gathered together. He called seas. God saw that it was good. And then you have the second part of it where there's this vegetation that occurs. I won't read through all of that. <laughs> What's God doing on day three? He's creating agriculture. So, again... I know we have this idea in our mind. Day one, he created light. Step back and see the function that's happening here. See what God is doing, the bigger picture. Use the details to fill out the bigger picture. So day one, God created time. Day two, he created weather. Day three, if you believe me at all, he created agriculture. Those were the three most important things to the Hebrew people. And here's something really cool. If you turn over into uh, Genesis, right after the flood. So Genesis 6, or 7, i got to find it. Um, actually, it's in 8th chapter. So we have the flood. If you look at the flood, it's decreation. It's wiping out everything on the face of the earth. It's decreation. So after the flood, God creates his mandate and says his mandate again. Man is to go out, populate the earth. It's all there. It's all said. But in verse um, 22 of chapter 8, God says, while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. He's creating this covenant that says, I'm not going to do that again. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to keep the three most important things from Genesis chapter 1. He says, I will, I will never strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest. What's that? Agriculture. Cold and heat, summer and winter. What's that? Weather. Yeah, weather. And then day and night. That's time. Which shall not cease. So God decreated through the flood, and after the flood, he makes a promise. Those three things are so important to you. As long as the earth remains, I'm going to keep them. 
So, so again, connect the two. And some of you are looking at me with really blank faces. But that's okay. We've got to move on. Day four. Now we come to the right-hand side. The three forms are done. Now it's time to fill those forms with inhabitants. So day four begins on verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years' time. Let, uh, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, the evening and the morning of the fourth day. So, signs, seasons, days, and years, there's the purpose. It's time. Now, in the culture of the day, notice that God did not use the names for these two great lights. He says the greater light and the lesser light. Why? In the competing ancient Near Eastern myths of the day, the sun and the moon are principal deities. They were invested with personality and with power, and they ultimately controlled the events on the earth. In response, they were to be worshipped and sacrificed to. It's a big deal, the sun and the moon. Here, the generic word lights is used by God to neutralize any presumed personality or power from the sun and the moon. They're simply lights. So God is, is using his word to speak to the culture of the day. And then, God made the stars. <laughs> it's almost as if, knowing what we know today of the immensity of the universe and the cosmos and the vast number of stars, we fall down before our creator God and just in wonderment at what he's done. And he just says offhandedly, oh, uh, hey guys, I don't want you to forget, I made the stars too. And we just fall down, and we can't believe it. Now again, back in those days, in the culture of those days, um, people would look to the stars to determine their destiny. And they would see the patterns of the stars. They would look at when they were born, all the stuff that went with that. And they would look to the stars to determine how they should live their lives. They would make decisions on all that. And, and they would decide who they were going to love and who they were going to hate. All that stuff based upon the movement of the stars and when they were born. Good thing. That's gone away. Listen. Seriously, a Christian has no need to have anything to do with astrology. If you're into that, leave it. It's foolishness at the very least. 
don't have anything to do with it. We have no business doing that. We have a God in heaven who gives us purpose and destiny. We have a Savior, Jesus, who died for us. We have a Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers us. We don't need that stuff. Day five. Let's jump right ahead. (laughs) Skipping so much. Okay, day five. Uh, He fills. He populated the day two creation with inhabitants. The waters get fish, and the sky gets birds. Verse 20. uh, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. Again, we're starting to see movement. It's building. If you look at the genre, we see it building. The, The sun and the moon arc across the sky. The birds fly. The fish swim. There's movement there. Do you see that? It's building, it's building. Um, And then um, we come to this interesting uh, description here, verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, etc., etc. The great sea creatures. What do you think of? You think of the whales. You think of the sharks. You think of the great. That's not what this is. The Hebrew word is tanin, and it means a sea monster. Did you know that? Why would God talk about sea monsters? Why would he? This is a very spare description. It doesn't use a lot of word, and he calls out, and he made the sea monsters. What on earth could that be? In the contemporary ancient myths of Babylon and Egypt and Mesopotamia, their creation literature is full of stories of the gods fighting against the great sea monsters as part of creation. That was the genre of the day. That was the creation story of the day. Now, when we read this term sea monsters, they also appear in other places in the Old Testament. I preached a whole sermon on this one time. There's various names. Rahab, the arrogant one. The dragon, the fleeing one. And worst of all, Leviathan, the coiled one. Ever heard those terms? They're throughout the Old Testament. Job 41 describes the fire-breathing Leviathan, his strength and his brutality, and we shake in our boots to hear about him. Here in Genesis, we read simply, so God created the great sea monsters. Old Testament scholar Bruce uh, Waltke writes, the dreaded primeval sea monsters, which symbolize rebellion and chaos in in ancient Near Eastern myths, are here depicted as merely a few of God's creatures. 
depending on and ultimately serving him. He then points to Psalm 104, which I'll quote. O Lord, how manifold are your works. His wisdom have you made, in wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There goes Leviathan, who you formed to play in it. The coiling, writhing, fire-breathing Leviathan is reduced to a rubber ducky play toy in God's bathtub. There is no battle. There is no fight. God spoke them into being, and they were there, and it was so. So it speaks to the day. It speaks to the culture. And finally, we get to day six. Two creative acts, the creatures of the earth and mankind. I've got to skip the creatures of the earth. I'm sorry. There's not enough time. Based upon the narrative, man is clearly the crowning achievement of God's creation because only man is created in God's image and likeness. So, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So a couple of things. Verse 26, could you, Luke, if you have a moment, could you put verse 26 up on the screen? I know I'm asking a lot. Ah, oh, look at him. He's the best. Um, verse 26, there's a bit of a structure here, and there's a divine decision to make man, and it's described in two parts. The first part said, uh, let, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's part one. Part two is, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a whole story about the creeping things as well, but I can't, can't, don't have time for that. Make man in our image and our likeness. Give man a specific role and a responsibility. That's verse 26. Now, verse 27 and 28 is an execution of the order to make man. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's two things there. The image of God and male and female. And then God blessed them in verse 28, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, etc., etc. Two things there. They're to fill the earth and they're to have dominion. So that's how it's laid out. So let's look at verse, uh, oh, I don't know. Where do I go here? How much time do we have? Oh, we've got an hour. (laughs) 
Um, let's make man in our image after our likeness. Let's talk a bit about image and likeness. I'm sorry. I, I have a question. Go for it. Yeah. Um, why does he say in our image? Great. I have a whole section on that that I was going to skip. So. <laughs> but first, here's my notes. There is a rather arresting term that catches the eye. <laughs> the pronouns used in verse 26 are plural. Shouldn't have skipped it. Thank you, Caleb. I appreciate it. And Christina, too. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is God trying to tell us? What is God trying to say here? There's books written about this, much discussion. There's eight or ten different versions of what on earth God is trying to say here. I think it's simply this. So first off, we've got to look at the context. So you and I today... Because we're great theologians and we understand New Testament teaching, we say, oh, there's the Trinity. That's the Trinity right there. With our New Testament understanding, the original hearers probably wouldn't have understood it because the Trinity wasn't developed fully until much later. You see, we have a progression of revelation as we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's progressive. We look back and we see Jesus almost on every page. By the Holy Spirit, we see it clearly. Here, we go back and we say, us, it's plural. It has to be the Trinity. I think it probably is. Again, the original hearers probably wouldn't have thought that. They would have thought it was the plurality of God. And they might have gone back to the first or the second verse and said, oh, the Spirit of God was hovering. I talked a little bit about that last week. We say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't have probably seen that. They would have thought it's the breath of God, God's powerful breath, the fullness of God. So probably they would have understood it more as the fullness of God. Some people say, oh, it's this royal we kind of thing. Wasn't there some king made or something here recently? Did you see some of the pictures of that, that king guy? Man, that, that, that leopard stole that he had on. Can... Hannah, where's Hannah? Can we get some leopard stoles for the, for the elders here at New King? Why can't we have stoles? So some people say it's a royal we, that he's speaking. It's like the royal court speaking. I don't think that's it. I think it's simply the fullness of God, which we understand to be the Trinity. That God through his Son, created the heavens and the earth, through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that help? I don't know about perfect, but thank you. Um, So, make man in our image and likeness. What does the word image mean? Again, if we look back to the Near East culture, the word image specifically refers to kingship. Kingship. Kings were an image of God or a deity. And it means that the king 
was God's representative on earth, invested with the authority of that particular deity. The word has royal connotations. It has to do with rulership. It has to do with authority and responsibility to rule as a representative. That was the context back then when you said image. Royalty, kingship, ruin. The term likeness is not a synonym. It's not the same. It has to do with behavior. How one conducts himself or herself. We see this... uh, in Scripture over and over, it's most often used in connection to how a son behaves with respect to his father. There's this concept in the, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, of something called sonship. The son was the son because he acted like his father. If your father was Stradivarius, you made violins. And that's what you did. We often say something like a chip off off the old block. I guess that's like from my grandfather's day a long time ago. Nobody says that anymore. But the idea is the son acted like his father. Likeness has to do with conduct. Remember when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees in John 8? They say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's sons, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You would be acting like Abraham. Instead, you won't hear my words. You were doing the works of your father, the devil. He's a murderer and a liar from the beginning. A person is a son, a likeness of his father, if he behaves like him. So put the two together. Image has to do with kingship, and likeness has to do with sonship. And we see these two characteristics displayed best in Jesus. In Mark 1, a voice comes from heaven that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This has to do with the behavior of Jesus. Jesus has just allowed himself to be baptized by John. He's identifying himself with the people he came to save, and God is so pleased with this behavior that he speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. A little further in Mark 9, we see Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Olives. His clothes become radiant, intensely white. We see Jesus in all his glory as the Lord and King. A voice comes from heaven and says, This time, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. God is saying, Now that you see my Son, the King, in all his beauty, Hear him, listen to him, 
obey him, be like him. So God creates man in his image and likeness to be his representatives, his vice regents, his ambassadors to go out and do what? Have dominion, subdue the earth, bring God to every place because they are his representatives in his image and his likeness. And we see that God created gender. Male and female, he created them. So God gives man the tools to go out and do the function that God wants him to do. How do you populate the earth without the two genders? You can't do it. (laughs) With the miracles of modern science, you still can't do it. So God created gender, and he created them male and female with a responsibility and a function and a call to go out and populate the earth. He also gave him the tools of image and likeness to be an image bearer of God in the person of a king and also to be like God in the likeness of a son. Day seven, rest. I've got to just fly through this. The heavens and the earth were finished. It forms a clear conclusion to the creation events. Genesis 1.1 begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now we have the conclusion, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. The chapter break there is unfortunate, um, but it's a conclusion. Verse 1 contains two statements. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. This again corresponds to form and function. The heavens and the earth and all the host. He formed, he fills. There it is again. Verse 2 and 3 are quite repetitious. This draws attention and creates emphasis. What did God rest from? He rested from the works of creation, is what it says uh, in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So what did God rest from? The works of creation. And what did God do? We think of God getting in his lazy boy, putting his feet up, and saying, man, that was hard work. I'm going to take the rest of the day off. I'm going to take this day off and do nothing. That's not what the word rest means. Old Testament scholar John Walton says, in summary, the lexical information suggests that the seventh day marks God's ceasing of the work of the previous six days and settling into the stability of the cosmos he created, experience refreshment and joy over what his hands had made. What is the purpose of the creation of the heavens and the earth? It's God's dwelling place. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
In fact, the details of the creation depict uh, it as God's temple, a consecrated place, a holy place where he dwells, a place of worship. We see this illustrated in the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and in Solomon's temple that he made uh, a little further on in Kings. Genesis 2 carries this idea forward with a more detailed explanation of the creation of man and women. They are described as those that tend God's sacred dwelling place, and the terms that are used are the exact same Hebrew words as those that serve in the temple and the tabernacle later. And finally, we are invited to enter into God's rest in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. And what does that mean? To cease from our own works and to rest in the work of the cross. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We lay down our burdens, our brokenness, our darkness, our chaos, our sin, our shame, at the feet of Jesus and we rest in his finished work on the cross we rest in God the creator who is in control who created the cosmos by his powerful word investing it with purpose and with destiny let's pray Father God we thank you for your creation we pray that we would see it with new eyes that we would wonder at how you created the heavens and the earth. Father, and we pray that we would rest in that creation and that we would rest in the work of your son, Jesus, the true king, the one who acts more like you than any person. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus, and pray in his name this morning. Amen.